Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 10 edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Chiropractic Association filed a lawsuit against One Call Care Management and Align Networks Incorporated. The association claims that the defendants engaged in acts of unfair competition and seeks an injunction against the alleged practices and money damages. The California Chiropractic Association was established in 1928 and is a Sacramento-based statewide nonprofit organization of chiropractic doctors and allied industries. Cal Cairo is composed of 27 districts and three student chapters and is governed by a board of directors elected by its 2,200 members. One Call Medical is a New Jersey corporation that establishes provider networks for the workers' compensation community. According to the allegations of the complaint, One Call is known in the industry as a cost containment firm. In essence, Cal Cairo alleges that One Call is nothing more than a for profit middleman in California's workers' compensation system that operates as an unlicensed network broker. They go on to allege that One Call generally pays its contracted chiropractors significantly below what chiropractors would be paid under the 2018 California Official Medical Fee Schedule for workers' compensation treatment services. However, the complaint alleges that unlike traditional PPO arrangements, injured workers are not simply free to select a health care provider from among the contracted health care professionals. Rather, Cal Cairo says one call assigns injured workers to the provider of its choosing, the providers who have acquiesced to the deepest fee discounts. But then the plaintiffs allege that one call illegally keeps most of the difference in the reduced fee and what their clients agree to reimburse for the treatment services. Sometimes Cal Cairo claims one call makes more for each treatment than the chiropractor is paid. According to the allegations of the scheme, it violates California unfair competition law, as well as the numerous California laws prohibiting referral systems for workers' compensation treatment services that are directly tied to financial incentives. One call and a line have 30 days after they are served with the lawsuit to answer or otherwise respond to the allegations of this complaint. And now our crime report. Popular orthopedic AME is ordered to serve seven years for child pornography. John D. Warbritton III, a former Oakland orthopedic surgeon and once popular AME, was sentenced to seven years in prison for transportation of child pornography. Warbritton was a graduate of Harvard Medical School and had an office at the Frank Ogawa Plaza in Oakland. He surrendered his medical license last year after the California Medical Board accused him of sexually harassing two of his workers' compensation patients. And the DWC announced that Warbritton was one of 20 medical providers it recently suspended from participating in the workers' compensation system. 
The criminal indictment, which was filed in 2016, alleges that Warbritton violated federal law by knowingly transporting child pornography. Warbritton ultimately pleaded guilty to the child pornography charge last May. According to his plea agreement, Warbritton traveled from Bangkok, Thailand to San Francisco International Airport in 2016 with electronic devices containing child pornography. Specifically, Warbritton was traveling with a laptop and a cellular telephone, both of which contained images depicting children under the age of 12 engaged in sexually explicit conduct. His lawyers claimed that Warbritton was suffering from both opioid use disorder and sexual impulsivity disorder. The plea agreement describes some of the images that were on the devices, including depictions of grown men engaging in sexual acts with girls under the age of 12. Warbritton stipulated that between 150 and 300 images of child pornography were on his electronic devices as he traveled to San Francisco airport. In addition to the prison term, Warburton will serve a seven-year term of supervised release to begin after the prison term ends. Six Los Angeles garment contractors have been fined $5 million. The Labor Commissioner's Office has cited the six garment contractors for over a half million dollars for labor law violations after uncovering a scheme where the contractors illegally operated under one license to avoid compliance. Shared use of a garment manufacturing registration is illegal. Also, four of the contractors did not have valid workers' compensation coverage for their employees. The Labor Commissioner's Office discovered that most of the 57 employees at the contractor's building downtown on South Broadway worked up to 65 hours a week for less than minimum wage. Two workers, ages 15 and 16, were operating industrial sewing machines in violation of California's child labor laws. After receiving a lead from the Garment AB633 unit, investigators visited the worksite operating under the name Pure Cotton Incorporated. The owner, Kayung Ho Choi told them he collected rent but was not involved in the making of garments. His brother-in-law, Kuang Chan Kim, claimed that all of the workers were employed by his company, Union Supply Incorporated, which was registered as a garment manufacturer. But further investigation revealed that other garment manufacturing contractors were operating in the building without garment licenses or workers' comp insurance. Kim charged each contractor a fee for the use of his license and insurance coverage, which concealed the actual number of workers. The Labor Commissioner's Office issued stop work orders to the four contractors operating illegally under the Union Supply, Inc. license, and their inventory was confiscated. They were cited for violating wage statement and garment registration provisions and failure to cover employees with workers' comp insurance. The Labor Commissioner's Office is currently pursuing wage theft investigations of the contractors. The Garment Manufacturing Act of 1980 requires that all industry employers register with the Labor Commissioner 
and demonstrate adequate character, competency, and responsibility, including workers' comp insurance coverage. Garment manufacturers who contract with unregistered entities are automatically deemed joint employers of the workers in the contract facility. Clothing confiscated from illegal operations cannot be sold and will be donated to nonprofit organizations in the Los Angeles area. The Labor Commissioner also administers a special wage claim adjudication process for garment workers pursuant to California's AB 633 passed in 1999. This law provides not only an expedited process for garment workers to file wage claims, but also provides a wage guarantee where garment manufacturers are responsible for wage theft at their contractors' facilities. And in regulatory news, the Department of Industrial Relations posted a progress report on the department's independent medical review program. George Parasato, the DWC Administrative Director, commented that IMR continues to provide a timely, efficient process for resolving treatment disputes and supporting appropriate care. Maximus Federal Services has been the independent medical review organization since the program's inception in 2013 and is under contract to provide IMR through 2019. In 2017, the IMRO processed nearly a quarter million applications, a slight decrease from 2016. At the end of 2016, the average length of time that Maximus took to issue a determination was 15 days, but by mid-2017, this decreased to a monthly average of only 11 days. Overall, the IMR overturned 8.3 of the utilization review decisions that denied treatment requests made by physicians treating injured workers. As in the previous three calendar years, requests for pharmaceuticals in 2017 comprised nearly half the issues in dispute, with opioids the most common drug class. Diagnostic tests, including radiology, imaging, and pathology, were the second most requested treatment category. Rehabilitation services such as physical therapy, chiropractic, and acupuncture were the third most requested category. The treatment category most often overturned was evaluation and management with a 16.3% overturn rate, which includes specialist consultations and dental services, followed by behavioral and mental health services, which had an overturn rate of 16.3%. Today's report, as well as previous reports on IMR data, are posted on the DWC's IMR wedge page under IMR Program Updates. The WCIRB has released its quarterly update on California statewide insurer experience valued as of March 31, 2018. California written premium for the first calendar quarter of 2018 is $5 billion, which is consistent with the written premium reported for the first calendar quarter of 2017. The decrease in 2017 following seven consecutive years of increases is primarily driven by decreases in insurer-charged rates. The projected industry average charge rate for 2018 policies is 6% below the average rate charged 
for policies incepting in 2017. The July 1, 2018 approved advisory pure premium rates are on average 37% below those for 2015. But the projected combined ratio for 2017 is five points higher than 2016 as premium levels have lowered while average claim severities increased moderately. Despite the recent increase, combined ratios for 2014 to 2017 remain the lowest since the 2004 through 2006 period. Indemnity claim frequency increased by 11% between 2009 and 2014, but has decreased by 5% from 2014 through the first three months of 2018. Indemnity claims continue to settle quicker, steadily improving over the last five years. Frequency increases since 2011 have largely been attributed to increase in cumulative injury claims and claims from the Los Angeles Basin Arena. Cumulative trauma claim rates continued to beat high levels in 2016, and the ratio of CT claims to all indemnity claims has increased by over 65% since 2005. The sharp increase in CT claims since 2012 is in the Los Angeles and San Diego areas, as CT claims in other regions of California have decreased. The WCIRB will publish a study of CT claim patterns later this year. Projected claim severity for 2017 is 2.5% higher than that for 2016, following several years of relatively flat severities. These severity increases in 2014 are largely attributable to SB863 increases to permanent disability benefits. Indemnity severity growth since 2015 has been relatively modest and generally consistent with wage inflation. Decreases in medical severities from 2011 to 2015 were driven by the medical cost savings arising from SB863. And pharmaceutical costs per claim decreased 70% from 2012 to 2017. These reductions have been driven by SB863's IMR and IBR, reduced utilization of opioids, and changes to Medi-Cal reimbursement rates. The new drug formulary effective in 2018 is expected to further reduce pharmaceutical cost levels. SB1116 AB 1244 made changes to lean filings effective January 1 of 2017. The number of liens filed since the first quarter of 2017 are 40% below pre-SB 1160 and AB 1244 levels. And in medical news, addiction specialists say they're expecting an onslaught of teens addicted to Xanax and other sedatives in a class of anti-anxiety drugs known as benzodiazepines or benzos on the street. Many teens view Xanax as a safer and more plentiful alternative to prescription opioids and heroin with similar euphoric effects. But addiction experts warn that the pills kids are taking often found in their parents' or grandparents' medicine cabinets 
can be just as deadly as opioids, especially when taken in combination with other drugs or alcohol. And it's much harder to kick the habit. Experts say the increasing abuse of Xanax and other benzodiazepines among high school kids and young adults over the last several years primarily stems from the fact that there are more of the pills out there. As more adults in and out of the workers' compensation system are prescribed Xanax, Valium, Ativan, and other benzodiazepines to calm their nerves and promote sleep, it is creating these vast reservoirs for abusers to find. The other problem that adolescents think the benzos are safe because their parents use them. Nationwide prescription drug abuse among adolescents has dropped dramatically in the last 15 years, according to survivor results published in December by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Last year's results indicate that about 4% of high school seniors misuse prescription painkillers, a sharp decline from 2004 when nearly 1 in 10 teens misused opioids. In fact, an increasing percentage of high school kids, at least 26% of seniors in 2014, up from 5% in 1976, are abstaining from all substances, including alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco. Even so, addiction practitioners say they're seeing a surge in the number of young patients who are hooked on Xanax. Many take high daily doses of the drug, sometimes in deadly combination with opioids and alcohol. And more kids are being admitted to hospitals for benzo withdrawal because the seizures are so dangerous. An addiction psychiatrist and professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine said, Benzos are quickly overtaking opioids as the primary prescription drug of abuse among adolescent patients he sees. And he said many of them are extreme high-dose users. Like opioids prescribed for pain, benzodiazepines prescribed for anxiety eventually stop working, forcing users to take higher and higher doses to get the same effect. Kids who can't get the pills at home, buy them on the dark web, or concoct designer versions of benzos in their bathtubs. But no medicines exist to blunt the withdrawal symptoms and cravings associated with benzodiazepine addiction. Instead, patients typically enter residential treatment, where a specialist gradually tapers them off the medication. If stopped too quickly, benzodiazepine withdrawal can result in seizures and even death. U.S. drug prices fell again in the second quarter of 2018, likely due to a new tactic insurers are using to limit financial assistance drug makers provide directly to consumers. Real U.S. drug prices, which includes discounts and rebates drug makers provide to insurers and pharmacy benefit managers, fell 5.8% in the quarter. That is compared with a 0.7% increase a year earlier. The new tactic is known as copay accumulator programs, which effectively force drug companies to continue to assist patients with their copays, and they are responsible for the declining real drug prices. In recent years, insurers have tried to guide patients toward less expensive treatments by making them pay a higher portion of a drug's costs. Drug makers responded by raising the financial aid they offered in the form of 
copay assistance cards similar to a debit card that reduced consumer costs at the pharmacy. PBMs, which manage prescription drug coverage for large U.S. employers, say these payments shield consumers from drug costs, making it easier for manufacturers to raise the prices. Many PBMs introduced the copay accumulator approach for their corporate customers this year. The programs prevent copay card funds from counting toward a patient's required out-of-pocket spending before insurance kicks in on expensive specialty drugs. And more employers will add the program next year. A recent survey of large corporate employers by the National Business Group on Health showed that around 25% of the respondents already had copay accumulator programs in place, and another 3% will be adding them next year. An additional 21% is considering the programs for 2020 or 2021. And a recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, OPEN, claims that about one in eight essential medicines in low- and middle-income countries may be fake or contain dangerous mixes of ingredients that put patients' lives at risk. Researchers examined data from more than 350 previous studies that tested more than 400,000 drugs samples in low- and middle-income countries. Overall, roughly 14% of medicines were counterfeit, expired, or otherwise low-quality and unlikely to be as safe or effective as patients might expect. And the lead study author said that while the study did not examine high-income countries, drug quality concerns are by no means limited to less affluent nations. Much of the research to date on counterfeit or otherwise unsafe medicines has focused on Africa, and about half of the studies in the current analysis were done there. About Almost one in five medications tested in Africa were fake or otherwise potentially unsafe. Another third of the studies were done in Asia, where about 14% of medicines tested were found to be counterfeit or unsafe. Antibiotics and antimalarials were the most tested drugs in the analysis. Overall, about 19% of antimalarials and 12% of antibiotics were falsified or unsafe. While fake or improperly made medicines undoubtedly harm patients, the current analysis could not tell how many people suffered serious side effects or died as a result of falsified drugs. But researchers did try to assess the economic impact of counterfeit or improperly made medicines and found the annual cost might run anywhere from 10 to $200 billion. Officials from the Global Health Policy Institute in La Jolla, California, added that the report provides important validation of what is largely already known. Although the study is comprehensive, its narrow scope means it only provides a snapshot of the entire program. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. 
by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd Scarron, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.